Well, Matt came walking up during the offertory and he just said to me, he goes, everybody's got their Bibles and their notes in their lap. It's so cool. And I want to commend you for doing that. You know, it reminds me that I haven't said in a while and we get new faces every week that we're serious about studying God's Word here. And that's like a big time initiative for us this year. And one of the things that we've done is we've chosen a Rio Vista Community Church official study Bible. It's the Reformation Study Bible. I think by now most of you guys have it. If you don't have it, we make them available in the back at our cost, which is $25. But if this is your church and you can't afford $25, pay what you can. If you can't afford anything and this is your church and you're going to use it, take it and use it. And bring it with you on Sunday. Open it up. Get used to feeling it and negotiating it and figuring out where everything is. And don't just do that, but also go online. Saturday afternoons, we post our study guides, which is really a filled-out version of my sermon notes with all kinds of questions. So the idea is Saturday, you get that or you bring your iPad. You can follow along if you want. And I know that some of you and more and more of you are beginning to do that. What you get at the door on Sunday is basically a note-taking page that's structured after the pattern of the message. Please don't miss the study guide. Please get a Bible and please plug into a community group where you can just take the study to a completely new level. All right? Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to them to James chapter 2 as we continue today with a series of messages that we started two weeks ago and that we're calling God's Word and My Everyday Life. And every week so far, I've told you that the reason we're calling it that is because that's what James talks to us about in this book. It's like he steps into our lives and then under the inspiration and guidance of God's Spirit, he calls out of our lives the issues that God most needs to talk to us about as he sees it. And he always sees things perfectly, doesn't he? And then what does James do? Well, he talks to us about them, and he talks to us about them very directly. And we saw a great example of that again last week. I want you to think with me for a second about some of the things that you heard last week. Because if you were here last week, here are some of the things you heard. You heard, for example, that real Christians are brand new creatures created by God through the instrumentality of His Holy Spirit and of the written Word of God. God comes to us, and by His Spirit and through His Word, He gives new life to us. So real Christians are brand new creatures who then also begin to live like brand new creatures. And I think we were all pretty cool with that for the most part because, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're a new creature, you're going to begin, at least to some degree, are you not, to manifest some evidence of that fact in your life. You're going to begin to live, at least to some degree, like a new creature. I think we were all cool with that until James circled it all the way around and brought the logic to its full conclusion, which is that if you claim to be a new creature, you better live that way, because if you're not living that way, then you're not a new creature. And for some of us, it's like this radical, open, obvious, you cannot miss it transformation. And for others, it is far more subtle. But the idea is there should be some newness in us that shows up in our lives. So we heard that last week. We also heard this statement, if you're really a follower of Jesus, then you really follow Jesus. And again, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Now look, we were real clear on the fact that you don't perfectly follow Jesus. You don't consistently always follow Jesus. There are times, in fact, a lot of times, where in this process in which God takes us, gives us new life, and then by the same Spirit that He gave us life, and by the same Word by which He brought us to salvation in Christ, He begins to progressively transform us into this new creature that He has created us in Christ to be, as issue by issue and item by item, He comes to us and He transforms us. It's a progressive transformation 
And in that progressive transformation, you know what? In following Christ, sometimes you step off the path. Sometimes you take a major detour from the path. Sometimes Jesus comes to you with one of those big issues and you go, hey, whoa, wait a minute, and you just stop on the path or maybe even take a step backwards on the path. But here's what you don't do. You don't claim to be a follower of Jesus and create your own path that never intersects with his. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you really follow Jesus. Or to put it differently yet again and again, we heard this last week. You can't come to God and say, hey, you know, Lord, here's the thing. I'm really interested in your spirit transforming my heart and life and in what your word has to say about how I can be forgiven and made new and made clean. In other words, here's what I'm really trying to say to you, God. I want to know that when I die that I'm going to go to heaven. I'd like to check that off the checklist of things that, you know, I mean, are important to me to get done in this life. So I'm really interested in that, but here's what I'm not interested in. I'm not really interested in anything else your spirit wants to do in my heart and life or in anything else that your word has to say to me about how I now, as a new creature, at least allegedly, ought to begin to live. So what I want then really is Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want Jesus as my Lord. James came to us and said, hey, whoa, bait, it's a package deal. Jesus is not two people. He's one. And if He is your Savior, then He is your Lord. And if He's not your Lord, then He's, you know, it's always that reverse logic that catches us, isn't it? He said these things. And you heard that if you were with us last week. I got an email That was overwhelmingly positive and from somebody that I adore, but it used in it the word controversial, and it said, you know, some of the things that you said, some folks, I think, thought were controversial, and I thought, well, uncomfortable, I understand. Introspective, you know, I mean, it should force us to to do that, yeah, penetrating, oh, man, my goodness, I lived with it all week, and then again this week. But controversial, I don't think so. James is not the only guy who talks about this. Jesus talks about it, and last week I gave you eight examples straight out of his mouth, and I stopped at eight. There's more. Paul says this. John says this. I think it's like the Spirit's sort of work of grace in my life that this week in my personal devotions, I came to 1 John, and I just started studying and reading it. If you have not read 1 John for a while, I would challenge you to go read it this afternoon. It's five chapters. Frankly, they're short chapters. And if you think that James is direct, John makes James seem like a schoolboy. He talks all about this issue, and he's all over it. If you're a new creature, then you start living like one. If you're following Christ, then, you know, at least generally speaking, you're following Christ. If He's your Savior, then He's your Lord. And that Lordship shows up in the way that we live. The summary statement of everything that James said to us last week is this. It is that real Christians don't just listen to God's Word. They also do it. They don't do it perfectly. They don't do it consistently as they ought. And there are always issues that Jesus is confronting us with that, you know, honestly, we struggle with. But here's what we don't do. We don't claim to be new and never evidence newness. We don't claim to follow Jesus and create a path for ourselves that never intersects with His. And we don't claim Christ as Savior and never submit to any part of His Lordship over our lives. Real Christians... Don't just listen to God's Word. They also do it. That's chapter 1, sort of summed up in a statement. And now what James does is he comes to us then in chapter 2 and says, okay, real Christians don't just listen to God's Word. They also do it. 
So let me give you some examples of what it looks like when you do it. And then he starts raising different issues. And the first issue that he uses as an example of what it looks like when we do it is the issue of the poor. And he comes to us today, if I can just sum it up in a statement, and he says, real faith expresses itself in practical, loving acts of mercy toward the poor. When it shows up toward the poor, that's what it looks like. And he begins to make his case in James 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, my brothers, he says, show no partiality. And what the Greek language is saying there literally is, do not judge anyone according to the way that they appear. My brothers, don't look at people and make a judgment. He says, my brothers, don't judge anyone according to the way that they appear as you hold or seek to express real and authentic faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes Jesus in such a way as to, number one, hopefully transform us. And to, number two, speak directly to this issue of what real faith looks like when it shows up in regard to the poor. He says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, the Lord of glory. And as you're studying through a passage like this, you have to stop and go, okay, let's interact with that for a second. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory according to who? Let me put it a little bit differently. In the eyes of the world, is Jesus Christ the Lord of glory? I think that we have to say absolutely not. What James is saying is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, guys, in the eyes of those who don't just claim to be new creatures, but then who live like them, who don't just claim to be followers of Jesus, but who actually, at least generally speaking, albeit imperfectly, but nevertheless, mostly find themselves on the path of following Jesus, who don't just claim Jesus as Savior, but understand also that in getting a Savior, you are getting a Lord. He's saying Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory in the eyes of those people, which means, practically speaking, that we see Jesus and we see glory and we see riches and we see poverty and we see just about everything else in life with a different set of eyes, well, then does pretty much everybody else in life. Or, at the very least, it comes to us and says that we should, that this is an area of transformation. That part of that being made into the new creature that God and Christ has created us to be is coming and to issue by issue, item by item, begin to see it with the eyes of faith, with the way that Jesus sees it. And so, for example, when the eyes of the world look at Jesus, they see a man who died for nothing and whose followers follow him for nothing. In fact, whose followers follow him for less than nothing because they understand intuitively something that is true about following Christ, which is that it's costly. Jesus comes along and he forgives and makes us whole and makes us new and redeems us and gives us all of heaven. We forget about that part, I think. And then he says to us, look, I don't demand just a little something from you. I demand your all. It's our great joy to give him our all. And I think sometimes that's all we focus on instead of focusing on what we gain. But see, the world looks at Jesus and they say, there's a guy who died for nothing and whose followers, good grief, follow him for less than nothing. It's a costly faith. But when we look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, we see the Lord of glory himself. We see the Almighty who looked down upon a pitiful people, an undeserving group, and who in humility suffered poverty that we might be made rich through Him, through faith in Him spiritually. 
entered into this world as a human being, the God-man to do what we haven't done, live the perfect life God demands, and then to die the death that we deserve as the punishment for each one of our sins. We see the Lord Himself, and we see that in Him we have everything. There's a different way of looking at things, you see? When the eyes of the world look for glory, their gaze finally rests upon things like power and and influence, and status, and notoriety, and wealth. But what about the eyes of faith? When we, with the eyes of faith, go looking for true glory, our eyes ultimately rest upon the Lord Christ Himself, and we begin to read in His Word, and to see His example, and to sit under His teaching, and to experience the renovation of the heart and life that comes by His Spirit and through His Word. And as we do that, we come to agree with things on with Him on certain things, like that the fact that the first in the eyes of the world really aren't the first, and that the last, indeed, in the eyes of the world are oftentimes first in the life and in the world that really matters and in the life and in the world that we ought to really live for, and that the greatest among us are not maybe the ones that, you know, make the news, make the headlines, get pointed out, receive the adulation of our community, but instead, they're the servant of all. And that real treasure, true riches, is not a treasure that we store up here on, hev- on earth, but it's a treasure that we store up in heaven. In fact, we have the opportunity with the treasure that we have here to store up treasure for us in heaven. And that true poverty is not the result of the lack of resources in this life. It's the result of the lack of Christ. For true poverty is a poverty of the soul, not of the bank account. And since we're talking about the poor... When the eyes of the world look at the poor, they view them as, an un, as a problem to be solved, as a liability to be minimized, and as an unfortunate cost that we as a society have to bear. And what James is going to say next is that if that's the way you view the poor, then you need to have a renovation of your vision. You need to look at them through a different set of lenses. You need to begin to view them with the eyes of faith because to view them as nothing more than a liability, a problem, and an unfortunate cost. He says is, and here's the subtlety coming through for you, he says is evil. Listen to what he says. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. Don't judge people according to the way that they appear as you hold or seek to express real and authentic faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of real and authentic glory, who invites you to look at everything, including the poor, not with the eyes of the world, but with the eyes of faith. And then he gives us an illustration, and it's very penetrating. It's one of those parts of the Bible, you know, where particularly as a pastor, you go, man, why did you put that in there? He put it in there for our good, for His glory. Here's the illustration. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, notice how he's just described him. He's described him according to the way that he appears as he walks in the door. All you see is the exterior. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly so he shows up at church 
and a poor man in shabby clothing. Notice how he appears, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And again, not according to the eyes of faith, but according to the eyes of the world, which looks at the rich man and says, wow, we can really benefit from him, and looks at the poor man and says, good grief, how much do we have budgeted for this? He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with what kind of thoughts? I just want you to know it's coming out of his mouth, okay? With evil thoughts. So you got to kind of sit in that personally for a minute and go, how do I personally look at the poor? And then if you're part of this church, then you have to join me in asking, okay, how do we? Is that what we do? Do we prefer the wealthy at the expense of the poor? And don't answer that too quickly because I'm going to define wealthy here in a second. You know, a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, I shared with you guys where we're heading this fall. And I told you that at the end of this series, we're going to begin a new series of messages that we're calling Leverage Your Life, God's Word and a Generous Life. And in that series, we're going to challenge one another over the course of five weeks to kind of go all in on Jesus. Not a new message. We've been talking about that for a while, but really to gather up the various pieces of our lives, our time, our talents, and hear this, please, so there's no surprises, our treasure. And go all in. We want to leverage them. That's the language for the glory of Christ and for the building of his kingdom in this city. And as one component of that greater ask, we really want to take advantage of an opportunity that we feel like God has created, constructed, and laid in our lap as a challenge to us to do something for the aid of the poor in this city. And in particular, for homeless single moms and their kids. That's what's coming. You see, as as a reality of the result of a small group of Rio people, it's a group that keeps growing, though, which is kind of cool, who have been planning and putting this whole deal together as a result of the fact that they've already invested their time, invested their talents, invested a piece of property, invested a significant amount of resources towards it. We believe that we have the ability in an affordable and an intelligent way to do something that will literally stand, hopefully, for decades in aid of single moms who are homeless. And so there's going to be a monetary component to that series, but let me tell you what we're not going to ask you for any money for, because it sort of makes my point. We're not going to ask you for any money to do anything around here. And it's not because we don't have things that need to get done, and I... I've really struggled with whether I should point this out to you because if your personality is like mine, as soon as I point it out, it's going to become hypnotic and it's going to be all that you see. But if you haven't really like carefully examined our carpeting in a while, it's not so hot, man. I mean, it's probably 15 years old. It gets used six days a week, even during the summer. We've got kids and camps and animals and things and all kinds of stuff that run through here all of the time. we got lunch going on five days a week in that room. We have community cafe. This is one of the most heavily used facilities that you're going to see anywhere, and I totally love that. That's the point. That's the idea. But my point is the carpeting is beat, okay? We've got stains that, you know, God alone can remove at this point. We've got seams that in places are getting like an inch to two inch wide because there are kids here who are just like I was as a kid and they see these little strings and it's like irresistible even though every week we clip those strings 
And they come and they grab these strings, just like you want to do if you're honest, and they just pull them up and run across the room while the carpeting goes... It's dead. And believe it or not, carpeting is a valuable ministry tool. And here's why. Because it speaks a language, doesn't it? It speaks a language of excellence. You walk into a facility and you look down at these stains that only, again, the Lord Himself can remove and big seams. And I mean, you know, if you're not familiar with the place and you don't know what they're all about and you just kind of go... Well, that's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I'm looking for in a doctor's office. It's not what I'm looking for in a restaurant. It's not what I'm looking for at my dentist. It's not what I'm looking for at my house. And and it doesn't do much for me here either. It's a valuable ministry tool. It speaks the language of excellence to a group of people who demand excellence. And who are that group of people? I'm going to call them the wealthy, and then I'm going to tell you that the wealthy is you. Worldwide, median income, $7,000 annually, and that is a hugely falsely inflated number by countries like ours. The reality is 81% of the people on this planet live at an average median income of $1,700 a year. Look around. This is one fabulously wealthy group. And what we want to start to do with this initiative in October and November is to stop saying to the wealthy, i.e. ourselves, hey, come on in, we got a nice seat here, we got the air conditioning, you know, we got the nice thin and this, and everything is cool and it's comfortable, if that also means that we are saying to the poor, hey, you know what, why don't you stand over there, or we've got a spot for you right down here at our feet. We want to begin to balance the scales. Okay? We want to begin to not just know what the Word says, about how we ought to view and treat the poor, but then also to do it. Know the Word, live the Word. So James says, My brothers, show no partiality. Don't judge people according to the way that they appear as you hold or seek to express real and authentic faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, and don't miss it, the Lord of real and authentic glory and who invites you to look at everything, including the poor, through the eyes of faith and not the eyes of the world. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, not according to the eyes of faith, but according to the eyes of the world and become judges with evil thoughts, to which he then adds in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And he's not saying all poor people automatically go to heaven and all wealthy people automatically don't, which is good news since we're all wealthy. He's saying, don't you realize that some of these people that you're ignoring, some of these people that you're disdaining, some of these people that you are disfavoring in light of those whom you are favoring are my sons and daughters? James is saying, God has chosen to honor them, but you, he goes on to say, have dishonored the poor man. James is saying, let me tell you something about the poor. They're not a problem to be solved. They're not a liability to be minimized, and they're not a cost that's unfortunate and that we're going to, I guess, have to absorb somehow as a society. Oftentimes, they are sons and daughters of the king, and every time they provide us with an opportunity to express our real faith through practical loving acts of mercy, because real faith expresses itself, he's telling us, in practical loving acts of mercy toward the poor. 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And then he steps into their everyday life and he addresses an issue that they dealt with then. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Aren't they the ones who use their power and their wealth to take advantage of you? He's saying, they treat you like that, and then you treat them like this? He's saying, the way that you're treating the rich and the poor makes no sense biblically, and it makes no sense Practically, And then he adds this to his argument that real faith expresses itself in practical loving acts of mercy toward the poor. Verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, and what law is that? He gives it to us. He says, here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, if you do that, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, and by the way, not just part of the law, but the whole of it. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Why? Because the law is kind of like a big single pane of glass. If you throw a rock through one corner, you got to replace the whole thing. You ruin it all. It's interconnected. You can't pick and choose amongst it. And that's what he says next. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Well, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the whole of the law is the idea. And then he says, so speak and so act. And the idea is of a continuing action. So continually speak, so continually act, he's saying, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty but judged under the law of liberty in what sense? Judged under the law of liberty in regard to the reality of our faith in the one who kept the law of liberty entirely in our place and in whom we find mercy instead of judgment. He's saying, look, God brings you to life, doesn't he? By his spirit, through his word, new creature. Now he wants to renovate your life and make you to, be, to begin to look like the new creature he's created you in Christ to be. He does that through his spirit and his word, you see? But if you never obey his word, what does that say? That you're not the new creature that you profess to be. If we're really new creatures, we'll live like new creatures. If we're following Jesus, I mean, really followers, then we follow him. At least, you know, I mean, not perfectly, but if we have Christ as Savior, then we will have Christ as Lord. And as one part of the expression of that real faith, when it comes to the poor, it expresses itself in practical loving acts of mercy. And so James concludes in verses 12 and 13, he says, So continually speak and so continually act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty as to the reality of their faith. And then he ends with this, he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If we have received the mercies of God, guys, we will be progressively and ever more merciful towards others.
If the mercy of God is a reality in your heart, then the mercy of God will become, in ever-increasing fashion, a reality in your life. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then he says mercy triumphs over judgment. So I want to conclude this morning by asking the same question that I asked at the end of the last message because I really want to be sure that you understand these things, okay? And the question is, what then is the gospel according to James? The gospel according to James is that we come to the law of God and we see ourselves for who we truly are in light of its holiness and its perfection, in light of the standard to which it holds us. It reveals to us God's character and the fact that what He requires of us is perfect compliance with His law as an expression of His character. We are overwhelmed. We are undone. We recognize that we are so filthy we cannot make it clean. You know, we're dead. We can't make ourselves alive, if you will. There's nothing that we can do about this other than to run to Christ. It is the law of liberty in that it drives us to the one who alone can make us clean, forgive our sins, and set us free from the judgment of the law. He makes us new creatures. You follow? Solely through faith in Him. But if we are truly then new creatures, then we're going to begin to live like new creatures. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, but not by a faith that is alone, but by a faith that then begins to show up at least somewhat in demonstrable ways in our lives. And one of the ways that it defines expression in our lives is in the way that we view the poor and in the way that we treat them. And what James is telling us in that regard today is that real faith expresses itself in practical, loving acts of mercy toward the poor. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, this morning and we are thankful that mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, Because, Lord, when we look into your law, we recognize that according to your standard, judgment is what we deserve. We thank you that when we look upon Christ with the eyes of faith, we see the Lord of glory, and we see His glory and His humility, and that He came and entered into this world to comply with your righteous requirements on our behalf. And then to take upon Himself all of our noncompliance, and it's overwhelming, and to wash us clean and to make us new with His blood. Lord, we thank You that You make that available to us by faith and that if we will just run to the Lord Christ, we will be forgiven and made new. And then, God, we thank You too for the privilege of being able, at least in glimpses, to see the reality of that faith being wrought by Your Spirit and through Your Word in our own lives. To be able to look back and to say, you know, this is different, and this is different, and this is new. God, to be able to know that we follow a Savior who, even when we step off the path and take a major detour or stop or go back, stands waiting for us to turn around and come forward yet again who again washes us clean, who receives us, Lord, and who by His Spirit empowers us to take the path 
of joy and satisfaction and life. We thank you for those things, for your glory. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would minister to our souls, that we would know that we are your children and that we would have the faith to do whatever it is that you call us to do next, that we might experience the joy of following you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.